0: Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report Podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we are back again for another episode of the Woodard Report Podcast. I'm excited. How are you feeling?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I am it's a beautiful day here in the Northeast. And yeah. All okay, good. well, it's
0: not a beautiful day here in the southeast. We're smoldering 98 degrees oh. uh, with about equal percentage of humidity, but inside it's cool and dry and we are talking today about um change management strategies yeah. um we all love change actually i read a great <laughs> quote that said that people don't they don't dislike change they dislike being changed right and maybe you maybe that's some of what you're going to touch on when you get into the psychology of of change leadership, but I know you brought yeah. this topic today. I'm super excited for you to lead out today. Tell us how we can do better with our change.
1: Right? Yeah. So you know our our job at Woodard is to transform advisors to help transform small businesses. Right. So uh, that's all about change. Right. So I think I want to start off with a quote from uh, from Charles Darwin, and he said, famous quote. Pretty cliche, it's not the strongest or the most intelligent who survive, but those who can best manage change. So we're getting changes coming at us all the time and it's really how we react to change uh, and our general attitudes towards it that are going to determine our success in pretty much anything we do. Because let's face it, change is coming at us all the time. And you know, your choice is to stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not there Or you can invest the time needed to really understand how to embrace change. Or even if you're not embracing it, how to manage it and then also how to help your team. You know, when it's just you, you're still dealing with dealing with your clients. Your clients still need to be, uh, you know, they still need help with change. And then, you know, the larger your team gets, the harder and the more complex that whole process becomes. So what I wanted to focus on today is talking about the psychology of change, of course, and the different personalities that, you know, leaders in this in the change management and change leadership area have kind of honed in on. And then I'm going to give some strategies on how you can kind of find synergies and partnerships and relationships to pair people up to help them tackle change. So why do people resist change? And I love what you said, Joe, is that they don't want to be told what to do. And, and that really is a big reason pride, right? So as a technologist who worked with clients for years and years, and you too, you know, introducing new technology, implementing new technology, we kind of had to become really good at this. And there was usually someone within the organization that was either saying, yes, let's do this, but really didn't mean it. Or there was someone in there that was just like, I am not doing this my way. The way that I set up these systems was the best way in the whole universe. And I am actually insulted that somebody thinks that there could be a better way to do it. And so you when you go into change management, new systems, new processes, new even new branding for a company, there's going to be some bruises there. So we've got pride. We've got surprise, not lacking, you're not communicating with the people that are going to be impacted by change and just springing on on them at the last moment. That's another going to get another react, uh, you know, bad reaction to that. Um, People think that there's going to be more work. So if I have to learn something new, it's going to take time. I'm going to have to put a lot of effort into it. And then there's the ripple effects. And the ripple effects are something that is absolutely justifiable. When you make a change, it does ripple into all kinds of different areas of your business and your life. And so that is a very valid. In fact, I would say all of these are valid emotions and why people resist change. Um, We have loss of control past resentments. So in some cases, it could be the person that is suggesting the change that could cause an issue. Concerns about viability, is this really the right choice? And sometimes it's real. So right now we're going through a big change in technology that is going to replace a lot of the tasks that we have done as accounting professionals throughout history data entry, things like that, that is a real threat. If that's all you're bringing to the table, then the threat is very real for you. And you're going to have to make some big changes and start, in order to stay viable um, to your clients and within the industry. But ultimately, I think the biggest reason that people resist change is fear. And I think that all of the reasons that I just mentioned kind of boil down to the fact that it's the fear of the unknown, it's the fear of success, it's the fear of failure. and so. There's are some core principles that you can do to help alleviate this. You're not going to get rid of it. Come on. We're human beings. Change is hard. Don't ever tell a client or anyone else that change isn't hard because it is hard by nature because you have to make changes and it's uncomfortable. So the core principles when you're talking about change leadership is preparing for the change. So we talked about the surprise element and preparing for the change means you having really great communication with everybody involved learning as much as you can about what it is you're going to change and what the possible scenarios would be and the effects of that change on other parts of the organization, the people, your clients, external stakeholders within the process. Um, That's the first part. And so that has to do with planning, vetting, looking at your options, making sure that you're budgeting enough money to make it all the way through a change. I've seen that happen where somebody goes in to make a change within their organization and they don't provide enough budget to actually bring that project to completion and that can be disastrous for for a company. Um, Then we have the implementation of the change. So the implementation of the change is actually doing it. It's actually going through the process of making those changes within your organization, within, um, you know, to actually make it happen and then there's a sustain of the change. Now I had a heartbreak in my career where I went through the first two really well really, really well executed. We went through the preparation, we went through the implementation, I went through the training, we were not able to sustain the change. And the reason for that was that I did not have buy-in at the very top of the organization. And this is one of the key reasons that firms do not end up with a successful implementation of change because the people at the top are asking you to, ch- the organization to change without actually making the commitment to the, that change themselves. And so you really need to have that buy-in right up at the top and you need to have a champion. And we're gonna talk about the different personalities within change leadership in a minute, but you need to have a champion at the top that is going to drive accountability across leadership to make sure that you have that buy-in or you're gonna end up with an in- unsuccessful wow. uh, implementation and change. So preparing for change, which is the first step, you want to make sure that you're creating an awareness that a change needs to happen and a sense of urgency. So if I know that change needs to happen, but eh, it can happen in, a, in two years or three years or whatever, then I'm going to put that off, right? Because as I mentioned, change is uncomfortable. So you have to create that sense of urgency. And there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You know clearly if the change is going to, you know, result in positive, positive, uh, you know, a, a better scenario, which we hope all changes, right. But it isn't always in some cases changes because something else is going away. Um, then you can really drive home to the people that are involved in this change, those benefits, right. Um, you can also set a deadline saying that we're going to, cancel something or if you know there's some kind of a penalty if we don't meet this change uh, at a certain time so sending that urgency is really important forming a strong coalition which we're going to talk more about in a minute so getting the whole team on board and making sure that you have the right people in the right places that are going to influence positively influence the change and help to counteract any you know detractors from that change and then develop a clear vision everybody wants to know where they're going so that communication is key. You have to have a clear vision. The more that people know about the change that is coming, the more the safer they will feel. And that remember that the anxiety about change is fear-based. And so you want to help people feel safe about that change, and that's kind of your job as the leader in change. For the implementation, make sure that you're communicating the vision effectively throughout the process. It's not a one and done thing. As you're going through different phases of that change, you need to reiterate why you're doing it. You're going to definitely have things that come up that are less than ideal and you need to be ready to address those and be able to explain why you need to keep going, right? Uh, You want to remove obstacles and empower action. So you want to identify anything that's going to inhibit the success of the project and the people that will inhibit the sex, you know, that could really kind of become a saboteur. We're going to talk about those in a minute um, in the project. And then you also want to celebrate short-term wins. And one of the things I always do, Joe, is when I'm doing a big implementation, I always try to find one thing that's low-hanging fruit that's going to make it feel like a big win for the organization. So for example, if I'm doing an implementation of an entire general ledger program, I will find what part of that, of their current system, is the biggest uh, pain for them. And I will try to solve that first. And I'll do that so that people will see the success and then they will want to keep going. And so you can that can be something as simple as showing them a feature that's going to make their day-to-day life easier. Um, an example could be if you were implementing QuickBooks, showing them how they could email, um, you know, email uh, invoices out instead of having to download and then attach it to an email. That's something that for a lot of people who are in that job is a huge delighter. So that's a win that's like, wow, I'm now going to save 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour a day I really want to get all the rest of this done. So you want to find those little wins. Um, And then to sustain the change, you want to consolidate the gains that you have. So celebrate those wins, consolidate the gains, and keep building on the change. So, you know, if somebody is really interested in it and you're doing one part of uh, of the change and they're really excited, pull them into other pieces of that. Really build a strong team. Anchor the new approach in the organizational culture. This is how we do things here. We used to do it this way, now we do it this way, and this is part of who we are. We thoughtfully went, you know, found something that was gonna be a good solution for us, and we're committed to it. And then reinforce and support the change for long term success. Now, I just wanna spend a couple of minutes, and we don't have too much time, but I wanna talk about the different people within an organization and how reactions to change and the attitude towards change really are important to good change leadership. And you need to look at it from a couple of different levels. You want to look at it from the personality level, and you also want to look at it from the power level. So there's two pieces to this. There's the people that everybody loves, that everybody's going to listen to because they're funny, they're really easy to get along with, they have great ideas, and they make you feel good. You want those people on your side, right? And then you also need the people, as we were talking about, you know, the the people in leadership within the company, they need to be you know, on your side too, because they're the ones that are making those decisions within the company um, that affect other members of the company. So the first thing that I do when I'm looking at a change, man, you know, d- looking at a project where we're going to be implementing changes, I look at the organization, organizational structure of the company to understand who's sitting where, right? So who is who's in charge? What is the uh, the hierarchy within the organization? And then I get to know everybody, right? And what you want to do is you want to go through and you want to pair people up for success. So there are six types of change management personalities that we need to consider. We have the champion. The champion is the person who loves the idea, is all in, and will do everything they possibly can to make the change happen. They are 100% on your side and you, you will call them up and they're going to help you. Then we have the influencer. The influencer is that person I just spoke about that everybody loves the person that could talk anybody into anything. And if they're on your side, then they can help to convince other people within the organization. We also have the saboteur and the saboteur is somebody who is really averse to the change. They don't want it to happen. And they will do everything in their power to derail the project. And they will do it in certain ways. They will refuse to adopt it. They will have water cooler conversations talking ill of people within the organization, talking ill of the change, and they will do everything they can to get that off, to derail that change, um, so that they don't have to participate. We have early adopters, which are people that are really, you know, they have a great attitude about it, they're ready, they wanna jump in, they wanna help, and they will adopt and start using either the technology or doing the new process um, early. We have late adopters, which are people that are, just take a little, it's not that they don't want the change, It's just that they take a little bit longer to convince them that the change is the right move for the company. And they're also people that are just so comfortable with the way they do things now that they're just kind of, you know, it's going to take them a little bit longer to buy into it. And then we finally have the fence sitters and the fence sitters are the people that are going to implement the last possible moment. And they're not going to contribute to conversation. They're going to cross their arms and they're just going to wait and see what happens. So they don't have buy-in, but they're not a saboteur. They're not, you know, they're not talking smack as it were about the process, but they're not, they're not all in either. So the, the, the way to be successful and to use these, these these different personalities to your advantage is to pair them up. So for example, if I have a saboteur, the best thing that I can do is find somebody who has the power and the influence to work with the saboteur to try and get them on board and ter- and change their attitude about the entire project. If I have a late adopter, maybe I want to pair them with an early adopter so they can see how it's changed their job or their life, and they can share some of the tricks and things that they have found. The champion's going to be the cheerleader. So the champion is going to usually be visible to everyone in the company and everyone involved in the project. And that's great. But sometimes the champion can really turn off a late adopter, a fence sitter and a saboteur because they see overly eager. So it's important to make sure that you're really pairing the people within your organization together so that they help each other to get over the finish line. Termination should be the last resort. But it should be on the table, right? Because if you have a saboteur that's going to derail the, pro- the pro- project or the change, in some cases, that's not something that can be fixed. And you're going to have to choose between a successful change or that, that saboteur. So that is something that you want to consider. And really, you know, going through change management, the best way To let go of something that you love or something that you really hold on is to give them something new to grab onto that they can believe in. And so what it comes down to is understanding the people empathizing with the folks that are going through the change and not telling them it's my way or the highway, but really understanding their emotions, understanding who they are and helping them find a place to fit in to empower them through the change.
0: Okay, that is power packed and I can't do anything to add to it. I just wanna comment on a couple of my favorite takeaways. It was very thick and very comprehensive. So first um, I picked up a lot of the power of why stuff here, which, you know, Simon Sinek and and it's not just business, it's all of life. and And I heard you say, keep coming back and revisiting the why. But one of my favorite things is the why varies based on who you're talking to. The why of ownership versus the why of administration you know, uh, one may be more goal oriented and outcome driven, the other may be alleviation of pain. So if you understand each individual person's why, um, and I loved what you said about how the continued adoption requires continued um, accountability. You didn't use the word accountability, but it's like, it's not over till it's over. And, 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 and I've, I've put in ERP systems for 20 years. And until I understood this, I was shocked at how many people just walked away from all that hard work, you know, six months after I put it in. And it was because I didn't stay with the long tail in the process and, and continually manage the, the sort of post adoption adoption. Right. Um, so, and, and I love what you're saying about the different personalities involved in, and we've all encountered our saboteurs. Um, and I was thinking the same thing before you said it, you know, you've got to have that axe of termination over their head or it just, you, you you don't have the power. And the final thing I will say that will actually, it will add to and complement what you said, um, is we mistake the champion for the one with the power because they have the enthusiasm. And if we make that mistake, we're going to fail. And the champion will be just as sad as we are. But, you know, they just, you got to have the air cover for the champion. Now you Absolutely. mentioned the air cover. You didn't say that that metaphor, but you mentioned the air cover. You just... Uh, I want to accentuate, don't mistake the champion for the person with the power.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Love that. All right. So uh, let's move to our second topic, uh, our second segment. Um, It's one of my super favorites because I'm a movie buff and TV buff. And um, I'm going to lead out on this one. It's our TV movie quote with business applications of the month. And mine comes from the show Foundation, which if our listeners are regular listeners, they know, Heather, we're both watching because <laughs> you, you had one from Foundation in a, in a previous episode here very yeah. recently. Um, but here, Har- Harry Selden, who is the this, this sort of the the genius and the hero of the um, of the entire uh, show, maybe even the catalyst character of the entire show, um, he says we've all been guilty of magic at one point or another now i have to unpack what he means by that um first you have to understand that isaac asimov did you know perceived science and magic as basically one and the same um and and his understanding uh, or his communication of magic is magic is that science that that reason can't yet comprehend so and that's actually brought out in the storyline well what what harry Seldon's trying to say the character here is um, we've all been guilty of infusing conclusions not based off of reason and rationality into our lives. Uh, we fill the gaps of data with with unhealthy levels of intuition, and we make leaps that, that defy reason rather than leveraging it appropriately. And when we do that, we fail as business owners there is a little intuition in the steering of business, and there's a lot of emotion, and those things are strengths when they are constantly checked by data and constantly checked by by measurements that trend across years, that are predictive in nature, that are standard within industries, and they're all wrapped around plans that transcend the emotions and intuition of the moment. That's how you can be guilty of magic, and don't be guilty of magic. All right, what What's yours? What did you bring to the table?
1: So mine is from uh, a show called Silo, which was uh, it was actually made after a book, um, a series of books, and there I think they started out as short like short stories or novelettes. Um, but anyway, it's about this apocalyptic. Uh, this apocalyptic culture, and they're living in the silo that goes about 100 floors underneath the ground. And they can't go outside because it's, you know, the, the world has been blown up or whatever, and it's not safe to go out there. So anyway, um, there's a woman, Juliet Nichols, who worked as a mechanic down in what they call the down deep, which is down at like the, the bottom of the silo. And it's her job to keep this big fan going. Right, so this big fan, which is pushing the air all the way up to the silo, so that everybody can breathe and keep everybody healthy. And so she has a quote. She says, "Everyone thinks their job in the silo is the most important. Mine actually is." <laughs> and I thought that was a great quote because we all feel like that. You know, one of the the biggest mistakes. And I remember somebody telling me early in my career where I was like, "Oh, I can't go on a vacation. I'm getting ready to go on a two week vacation, Joe." Um, yeah it's exciting and that was great know, it's so exciting um, it's very well and, learned too well thank you um but we all you know i remember going on a vacation like oh nobody's gonna be able to do my job or i can't leave this you know position because no one's gonna be able to do what i do because my job is the most important and you know that's just not true we all contribute to the organization and and what i've learned is it's very rare that somebody is irreplaceable right? Um, and so I think that it's great that everybody thinks their job is the most important job because that means they really care about it and they take pride in what they do. So I think that's a really great thing to feel. Um, but I think it's also important to understand that we're all in this together no matter what we're doing. In an organization, we're all working towards the same vision, mission, and purpose. And we need to keep that in mind.
0: Well, and I love I love your reference here because it's often the things that seem lowest down and most out of sight in the daily operations that can be critically important. And I think, you know, that's, we're talking to an audience here of bookkeepers and accountants and tax preparers and auditors. And I've often said, if you were to take all the bookkeepers off the planet, the entire economies of the world would fail within a day, um, you know, or at least within a bookkeeping cycle. So, you know, we, you know, it, it, that should resonate with the audience that sometimes what we see is so unseen that right. our clients can deem us to be that fan worker and not important till all of a sudden they can't breathe.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right? no, yeah, absolutely. then they want us
0: working the fan really fast.
1: Absolutely, and you know what was interesting about this quote, and what makes it even more powerful is that the job that she was moving from was the sheriff of the whole, like the person with the, you know, one of the people with the most power within the silo, and she was mm. saying. I can't do that because I'm keeping everybody alive, you know? Right. So it was, so it was very impactful. So That's great. interesting.
0: Well, um, all right. Let's move to the book segment. And I've got that one this time and I'm going to go, uh, not from something I've read recently. I'm going to go, because if I only did that, I could never cover the classics and uh, the things I've read over a decade, two decades, three decades uh, of business leadership. So, um, I'm going to go into the archives of my brain here, into one of my all-time favorites, and that is David Allen's Getting Things Done. Surface that back up for a minute. There are entire podcasts in our classic series that are based around the concepts of getting things done, and I re- and I referred to it in one of our recent ones, Heather, on conquering task overload. Um, but it, but I wanted to actually shine a light specifically on it. Um, I could. I've already done two or three episodes on it. So I'm not going to try to break down the whole book, but what I'm going to do to highlight it and encourage everyone listening to read it or reread it is, uh, to focus on the ultimate outcome of the book, which is not to develop any specific system of task management, though. He he has a process involved the container that you use is not what he's purporting. As a matter of fact, when he wrote the book, he dealt heavily in the world of paper, even, um, he said, don't overthink the, you know, the container of your tasks. That's a distraction. Instead, make sure it's a system you trust and you check regularly. He said, that's where task-based systems fail. It is not a system that you trust and or it is not a system that you check regularly. Um, and, and once you've crossed that hurdle, the next question comes, then on a daily motion level, how do I put things into the system, whatever the system may be? And he says that that's uh, two different considerations. One is the four D's. The four D's have changed my life. The four D's are the foundation of my every day as a business owner. And I would say out of the 10 or 15 top business principles I've ever encountered as a business owner, Maybe even outside of the spiritual, as a human being, um, the four D's are that high. If I've got your attention, podcast listener. And the four D's are do it, delegate it, defer it, or delete it. Now, he actually does them in a different order, but with all respect to the mighty David Allen, I think my order is better. And I'll tell you why. Because first, I'm going to ask myself, the same question David Allen said, if you can do it in a couple of minutes or less without creating opportunity costs, distraction costs, or letting other people on your team down, just get it done. All right, get it off your plate. Um, but then he goes into defer it next. And I don't like defer it next. Um, because the next question I'm gonna ask myself is if I can't get it done in just a couple of minutes and just clear it out of mine and the organization's mind share. The next question I'm going to ask myself is, am I the one that's supposed to be doing this? Now, some people would say delegate comes first, even if it only takes two minutes. Andy Stanley is fond of quoting, only do what only you can do. So even if it's two minutes, delegate it if it needs to be delegated. Okay, there's an argument there. But I'm in the do it then if you can't be done very quickly, delegate next if you possibly can. And only if you can't delegate it and you can't do it, then defer it. And the deferral high horizons could be as much as uh, hours, days, weeks, months, quarters, years. Right? It all comes into, into horizons of defer. So do it, delegate it, create a horizon of defer, and then delete. Um, so, and yeah, you know, and delete is about elimination. I would recommend that you, uh, that you read the book by Hyatt called "Free to Focus." That whole book is basically an exercise in when to delete. All right. And you can drill down on his fourth D through, through Michael Hyatt's book. Um, but I want to talk about containers very quickly as it's, it's the only other piece of the book that I have the time here to, to surface. Um, once you decide that you're going to defer something or delegate something, you have to think about the container in which it will be placed. And I don't mean again, the process system, that's a, that's an infrastructural decision. Containers have natures. And is the nature of this particular container project-based? Is this one of many Lego blocks and something an entire team is building over time, All right? That's a consideration. Is this container a silo, back to your you know TV reference, right? Is it my container only? I own this container, I control this container, I'm the only one impacted directly by this container. Um, is the container reference-based only? Um, meaning that I'm largely going to research is my action that I'm deferring based off of something somebody's intrigued me by, you know, or a book that I'm supposed to read or something, you know, like that. And I won't go through his entire, you can read the book and get every container. I'm just trying to speak to the nature. So uh, delegate it, right? Let's go ahead and put that one at the top for a minute. Uh, Delegate it, uh, do it, defer it, delete it. And if you will start with your, email inbox and you will put your email inbox up against those d's my only challenge to you is if you're doing that on an inbox cleanup start with the delete right delete it do it delegate it defer it and you will be at zero inbox in depending on how many emails you have (laughs) you you'll get to zero inbox in either days or weeks, but at least you'll see some light at the end of the tunnel.
1: I love that. And Joe, I, it's funny because I was never really great at, at getting to inbox zero until I joined Woodard. And now I, I get there almost every day. So.
0: It's, it's, it's liberating, isn't
1: it? It is yeah. liberating. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
0: And and I think and the reason people aren't at, at zero inbox is because they don't, do the delegate into proper systems into a system at all. And they don't defer into a system at all. Their idea of delegate defer, especially defer is just leave it in the inbox. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah. Which is what I used to do.
0: Yep. And then they, if, if it's somebody else's task, which is delegate, they'll leave it in the inbox to remind themselves that so-and-so is supposed to get back to me on this, right in the inbox, this flat container becomes the place we live and It doesn't fit there and it causes anxiety. So and it's distracting. Mm-hmm. So if that intrigued you, read the book, go back, listen to the classic episodes on David Allen's Getting Things Done or our most recent one on Conquering Task Overload. But now we, we're moving into the our favorite social posts of the yes. moment, right? What have we read in the last week or so? Um, Heather, what's out there? What'd you, what'd you read so, that you like?
1: Uh, Jason Stats, who we both love, um, he said, resist the urge to be everything, everything to everybody. And letting this stuff roll off you is a learned but extremely valuable skill. And I could not agree more. I and there's two, there's kind of two thoughts on this. One is trying to be, and first of all, this came from I think somebody wasn't said something kind of mean to Jason. So and so he was talking first about, you know, you can't make everybody happy and you really have to understand that it is impossible for everybody to like what you have to say. You're always gonna have somebody that disagrees with you and you have to stand by who you are, your VMP, and 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 be okay with that. And I think that's hard. That was particularly hard for me during my life. I'm there, thank goodness, but it took me a while to get there. Um, and then I also think that there's trying to be everything to everyone in the other sense is taking too much on, right? Saying yes. And there's such a power in saying no. Because what we don't realize, and I've heard this probably from you, Joe, but also from other people, that when you say yes to something, you're saying no to a bunch of other things. And you may not even realize it. And so I think that there's two learnings from this, this tweet. The one is, you know, be yourself and be own it. Be you. And also really be intentional about what you say yes to. And don't try to be everything to all people, because what will end up happening is you'll end up spreading yourself so thin that you can't shine.
0: And, yes, absolutely uh, right. Yeah. Could not agree more. And a lot of it's just a, this confidence that comes from from you know my identity as a human, my mm-hmm. worth as a human, is not based off of the perception of others. And, and right. that's counter to the way that that we've been engineered. Um, you you referred to Darwin well, the human race survived by adaptation and we sur- and part of our adaptation was, was, was that we, we formed tribes and we found strength in numbers and acceptance within the tribe is ingrained at the DNA level into our instinct for survival itself. And we have to somehow shelve all that and go, what actually, what that person thinks of me doesn't matter. <laughs> right? That's hard.
1: It is it's hard. hard. It is um, hard.
0: All right, so my quote comes from, from Inky Johnson, who has spoken at Skelly New Heights a couple of times. If you don't know who that is, just go to YouTube, Google Inky Johnson, watch the first video that pops up, because it's always the most popular one, and be prepared to cry. I don't care if you're not a crier. Um, he, he's a powerful, inspirational human being. And he said, greatness is found on the other side of, quote, I don't feel like it, unquote greatness is found on the other side of quote I don't feel like it unquote um, and and what I've I've phrased it differently but I've got a bit of a of a couple of mantras that I, I use throughout my day and one of them is the dread of a thing is worse than the thing itself right um, uh, it isn't have to it's get to I, I tell myself that one all the time um, and Then what I had a psychologist friend tell me about the actual way that the neurochemicals work in your brain, it was enlightening to me from a scientific side, not just a pep yourself up side, uh, neurochemically, the desire to do a thing usually comes after you begin doing that thing. So there's neuroscience behind what Inky is saying here, Uh, serotonin, adrenaline, um, they're both stimulated by the action. They don't precede the action. And if we think about what we do as humans, right? I mean, studying for the big test as a kid, uh, you know, writing the article for Heather that you owe her, writers out there, right? We don't ever feel like doing it typically until we start doing it, and then all of a sudden we've lost an hour or two in the joy of it. And And the biggest mistake you can make in life folks is to wait for the desire to do a thing before you act. Um, you will, you will act about 10% as much as you should.
1: I love that. And that's so true. It's so true. Um, absolutely. Even sometimes I'm like, I don't want to go to the barn, but I do, I know that that once I get there and I'm in it, I know I'm going to love it, but it's kind of like, I'm really comfy sitting in this chair, you know? So, I I that resonates with me. So yeah, I guess the more sh-
0: daunting the task. The right? more daunting and
1: that, the task, the harder it is. And then we're
0: kind of bringing it back around to your change leadership piece, right? Yeah. That you know, they the front side of it is always more fearful. So all right. Absolutely. This is the Water Report Podcast. You're the senior editor of the Water Report. And we always like to wrap up by you telling us your favorite article uh that's recently been posted out there in the in, in the Water Report. Okay. So in my favorite article is
1: um it is. It, it, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. It's a little bit of self promotion here. So, <laughs> my favorite article is Woodard's ideal practice symposiums are coming to a city near you this fall.
0: Okay, shameless and promotion. All right, but I'll it take it. I did not ask promotion. Heather to do it. All right.
1: No, no, you did not. And and I love this article because I'm so excited about the symposium and the fact that we are going to four locations this fall and that we're going to get to see our friends all around the country. So. Uh, you can learn more about it. We're going to California, Texas, Georgia, and New Jersey, greater Philadelphia area. Uh, there's going to be, it's going to be chock full of really amazing deep training, um, lots of fun. And so, yeah, so that was my favorite article because I'm so excited about it.
0: And you're going to be there personally for all but yes. the Costa Mesa location. Um, I will be there personally for all four. Heather will be at all four. And Liz. Liz from yes. Appy Hour will be at yeah. all four. That's right. And you're gonna be recording live broadcasts from the Appy Hour on site um, That's you know, right. at each of those locations. So uh, su- lots of reasons to come. Uh, do join us at one of those symposiums. Now that Heather's teed me up, I'm gonna finish it out. I mean, yes. <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, we'll go ahead and do that. Well, Heather, it was a joy being with you, and uh, we had another great episode. Thanks for bringing an A-game topic to head us off, and I'm looking forward to next time. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com podcast.